All right, today is the Holy Ghost. Matter of fact, if you preach on the Holy Ghost, I've been watching TV preachers. They all do this a lot. Um, so I've got my Holy Ghost wipe it down rag today. Um, just in case I need that. Now, uh, we're doing this series, right? This whole thing called March Madness. And in March Madness, you chose the topics that you wanted to hear about. And when I read that the one of the top four was the Holy Spirit, I, I was both very excited about this and, and very uh, worried all at the same time. And uh, excited because I go, man, what a rich topic. Uh, a little bit concerned because I'm like, I don't know how we crush it all in. There is so much to say and share that that comes down to the Holy Spirit, then I'm like, man, I'm going to try to do my best to, to simplify some of this and move as fast as possible. So today we're diving right in. We're looking at what it means to be wind riders, right? What it means to ride the wind. And when we talk about that, we are talking about God who is Holy Wind, Holy Spirit. I mean, we're jumping right in because that is the topic. He is the one. And I want to highlight that word, He. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not simply an attribute of God. Some religions, some ideas, even like Mormonism, for example, see the Holy Spirit not as a person, but as a demonstration of God. But when we read the Bible, we see, no, He is a person. He's not an it. Even cousin it wasn't an it. Neither was the Holy Spirit, right? So, personhood. The Bible communicates that the Holy Spirit is the third person of our triune God. We believe as evangelicals that God is in three persons, but one in essence. We don't understand that. That's a mystery. But from that, we have God the Father, and He does certain things, and God the Son, and He does certain things, and God who is Holy Spirit. And He does certain things. In fact, to understand this just a little bit, I, I, I go to this idea of even how, how his name plays out, what it means, right? You, you first think about the spirit side. In Hebrew, he was ruah, right? Good, strong word, ruah. You know, you get to the Greek New Testament, he is pneumos. The P is silent. And for all of you pre-Second Vatican Catholics, we put Latin up there just for you, all right? Spiritus. Right? And this word literally means wind or breath. And this captures the idea that with the Holy Spirit, there's something about Him that you cannot contain. We want to do that. That's the problem with today's message even. We want to systematize this unbounded God. And so by calling Him wind or breath, man, that communicates you cannot harness Him in this very simple package. So don't try to. You can't do it. He is as gentle a wind as Him speaking into your heart, such as in John 3, where you have to be born of spirit, all the way to He is a rushing wind that anoints the early church in Acts 2 with power. So don't harness Him in a way that puts borders on Him. He is wind. He is breath. He is spirit. But at the same time, He is holy. Holy. And this idea of holiness, we typically think of holy as a moral word. I want to be a holy person, therefore I want to be a moral person. And I don't want to take morality out of the word holy, but I want you to expand what holiness is. Because again, go back to the Old Testament when God dis designed the tabernacle and then he made instruments for the tabernacle. He made those instruments holy. That doesn't mean he made them moral. What it means is he set them apart. He made them uncommon. 
So in that sense, the Holy Spirit's role, mission, job, and heart is to take things and make them uncommon. Take things and set them apart. Make them for different usage than the norm. And when you look at the Holy Spirit, what's really cool about this is He is the only member of the Godhead that actually has the name Holy. Yahweh is certainly holy, but His name is not Holy Yahweh. And Jesus is certainly holy, but His name is not Holy Jesus. Only the Spirit has the name Holy Spirit because it captures that His role, His job, His mission, His very essence is to make things and people uncommon. Set apart. That's what He does in our lives, right? He sets us apart. He makes us different from the norm. In fact, maybe a way to see this is that what the, the Holy Spirit really is up to is everything He touches, everything He grabs, everything He inhabits takes heaven and makes it true to that. Makes it set apart, makes it heaven-like, makes it different from the worldly things that we understand. See, that is our Holy Spirit. We understand our Father, we understand our Savior, but we need to understand as well what He does, He who is the Holy Spirit. And what I think is valuable to capture is, in a lot of ways, what, you know, what He brings to our lives that so defines us as people of God, right? Because there is something that defines us as people of God. And I I think it's important to understand that what really defines us is God's indwelling presence. That's really what defines us. I say that because we sometimes run the risk of letting wrong things be the defining things of the Christian. For example, we want to make sure that we're defined by our morality. We want to make sure we're defined by our doctrine. We want to make sure we're defined by our family values. We want to make sure we're defined because we read the Bible or go to church or we're good people or whatever else. Now, those things aren't bad. They are good. But the thing that should chiefly define us, and that is the reason then we do all those other things, is something deeply profound to the person of God himself. In fact, Moses understood this. You you go back into Exodus, and uh, of course, uh, the people of Israel, they've left Egypt. They're cruising through the desert in a very long route way. And as they go, they're complaining, they're grumbling, they're, eh, they don't like what God's doing, how God's doing, and everything else. And finally, at one point, God says, enough. Enough, I'm tired of dealing with these people. I am not going to lead Israel any longer through the desert. I'll meet you on the other side. I'm going to have my angel just do it instead. And Moses kind of steps up to the plate. He says, whoa, wait, wait. Don't just do it that way. In fact, he says in Exodus chapter 33, he says, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. He says, how will anyone know that you are, look favorably on me, on me and on your people if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart over all the other peoples of the earth. What should set us apart? God's presence. When people look at the life of the safe person, what they should chiefly say is, wow, that must be the presence of God. Not simply, that's a good person. That's a churchgoer. They're devout. 
But it should be, man, God's presence is clearly in the life of that individual. They exude it because that is the defining feature. Anybody can have morals. Anybody can read a Bible. Anybody can go to church. But only those whom the Spirit lives in can display the presence of God. And so Moses knows, man, if your presence isn't with us, who cares? Game over. Don't want to do it. So that is what the Holy Spirit's all about. In fact, you get then into 1 Kings chapter 8 where they build the temple. Right? Finally get it all done. And, and who descends into the temple? God. His presence. And so Moses says, we need your presence to be your people. And then God uh, kind of takes Israel through the desert by way of his presence. And then God comes to his temple and his presence is there at the temple. But then you get to Jesus. Right? And then Jesus does something unbelievable. He takes our sin, gives us his righteousness, so that we become literally consecrated. We're set apart by his work so that the Holy Spirit can come and dwell in us. That is profound. That's why Paul says, don't you realize? And I think they didn't realize. In the same way, I don't think we realize how unbelievably profound and supernatural it is. Don't we realize that it says you together are the temple of God and his spirit resides in you. He's like, man, don't you get it? Don't you see it? Don't you know that this is what makes us different? Nothing else is as profound as that because from that all sorts of other profound things flow. But it starts with knowing that He is God's indwelling presence and that's what makes us different. What this means for us even is that the Holy Spirit was involved even in the process of what then was required to set us apart, to consecrate us, to make us a place where He could dwell. See, sometimes we go, well, what is the Holy Spirit's role in the life of the believer, forgetting that the Holy Spirit had a role in the life of the pre-believer? We act as though, no, once we're saved, then it's like a Holy Spirit thing. Like, up to that point, it's a Jesus thing. Like, Jesus is the, hey, man, you're just a pagan, and he's going to save you. And then once you're saved, oh, the Holy Spirit says, I recognize that guy now. No, actually, he, he plays a role both in saving and after we are saved. So what did the Holy Spirit do in the saving process? Well, if you go back to last week, he's a part of that whole series of things. So first of all, he uh, awakened dead hearts. He opened blind eyes, right? So remember we had Tucker up here and he had an onion heart. And the onion heart had to come out and the, the heart that was a peach had to go in. An old heart had to be removed and a new heart had to be put in its place. Well, the thing that sets that up is the Holy Spirit. When we read in John 3 about being born again... Uh, the born again is to open spiritual eyes, right? It's to make us actually be able to contemplate what the Holy Spirit is even up to. He gives birth to spiritual life. You can't even contemplate the gospel until you have some spiritual something going on that says, hey man, you need that message. And so the Holy Spirit, he does that. And he, he does that in ways we don't understand. That's why Jesus says, man, we, we, we don't know where he's coming, where he's going, how he does it. So if Jesus said, we don't get it, I'm pretty sure we don't get it. But that's what he does. He opens dead hearts, awakens blind eyes. Another thing the Bible tells us about the Holy Spirit and what he did in saving us is he files our adoption papers. Romans chapter 8. He says, For you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you 
as his own children. Right? Now we call him Abba Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. I mean, I, I love this because here's something that I think is overlooked. If you look through your entire Bible, a phrase you will never see connected is that the human race are God's children. You will never see anywhere in the Bible that affirms that the human race is God's children. You will not find it. You won't see it. What you will see repeatedly is the human race is at enmity with God, fights God, doesn't seek God, doesn't desire God, but God adopts. And when he adopts, then we become children. Which is pretty profound that we go from being enemies to adopted kids. That's what makes us his children is the adoption. And the adoption is done by way of Jesus making it possible. And by way of the Holy Spirit bringing us in as family. And so we go from fighting to being embraced. Right? So he does the adoption papers. That's a part of his job in our being saved. And then in addition to that, he deposits himself as a down payment. Right? He is the down payment for the promise that says, I will complete you. I will take you on to glory. I have a plan for you that is eternal. That's what the Holy Spirit also does in our life, right? So he becomes that deposit, that guarantee of down payment, all for the praise and glory of God. So the Holy Spirit does all of this. He opens us up, he steps in, he inhabits our person, he shows God's presence is with us. And then from that point forward, he begins to grow us and groom us and shape us. And we call that sanctification. As much as the Holy Spirit saves, the Holy Spirit sanctifies. And this word sanctification, it's just a compound of two words. To make holy. That's it. He wants to make us holy. But again, go back to what holy is. Is it more moral? Well, that's a byproduct. Is it more family value oriented? Again, byproduct. Holy is uncommon. What will make us different than the norm? That's his mission. And so if I was to look at the Holy Spirit and what we were like before and then what we're like after, in a lot of ways, the way I think we should understand this is a little bit like, hey man, you were just kind of doing life, didn't realize, and then one day God steps in and says, I am going to give you not only myself, but in giving you myself, I am going to give you literally like superpowers, which is so cool to me. That the Holy Spirit is literally like having superpowers, right? So the Green Lantern, he had a ring, and, uh, you know, Thor had a hammer, and Wonder Woman had a rope, and Napoleon had dynamite, whatever it is. You know, but it's like every superhero has something. And in this case, for us, our superpower is the Holy Spirit. Where he steps in and he gives us abilities beyond our normal capacity. I mean, that's, a, that's what a superpower is. It's what a super skill is. It's what a super gifting is. It's a capacity beyond the norm. And so when you look at the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian, the first thing he does is he gives us a very unique new mind. A mind that can know the mind of God in some particular way that we couldn't know before. He reveals God's mind. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, but it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. He's setting this in, in kind of contrast to those who don't know God. He says, so they get hung up on a bunch of things. He says, but to us, 
God revealed these things by His Spirit. For His Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. So no one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so that we can know the wonderful things that God has freely given to us. Now you might look at that and go, I don't know if I really know God's thoughts any better. Well, you actually do. You do. Which is why there are certain things you believe. You believe that Jesus is what it takes. You believe in the sufficiency of Christ. You believe in the cross. You believe in the resurrection. You believe He's coming back one day. You believe you will live in heaven forever. You believe God resides in you. All these things you believe and you are convinced of because the mind of God has been shown to you by way of the Holy Spirit. But the world looks at you like this. Right? Really? Look like an angry mother. You know, like, really? You really worship a God you can't see, really? You really believe in the supernatural? You believe a guy rose from the dead, right? So, that kind of thing, where they look at you strange, where they say it's foolish. The reason you don't think it's foolish is only because God's Spirit has convinced your mind. He has given you the capacity to see things different that you wouldn't see if He hadn't done that. So that is something the Spirit does. He convinces you. He causes you to believe things that everybody else looks at and says, that's odd. In fact, the way the world looks at your beliefs is no different than the way you look at other religions' beliefs. Right? I mean, you look at other religions, you go, oh, that's weird. 72 virgins? Sure. Right? That's, that's your disposition to all other religions. Well... That's how the world sees you. And you would see yourself that way too, except for the Holy Spirit has spoken. He's taught. He's shown you the mind of God. And so from that we go, oh, it doesn't mean we know everything. It doesn't mean we know everything. Not even close. But we know what matters so that we can freely worship. And so he reveals the mind. That's one of his superpowers to us. Another thing the Holy Spirit does is he kind of manifests or displays the gifts of God. As much as we have the mind of God, we then somehow receive these gifts from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit that is the source of them all. There are different kinds of services, but but we're serving the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each one of us so that we can help each other. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all of these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. Now, one of the problems in my experiences with uh, the topic of gifts in the Holy Spirit is either it is made too much of or too little of. And really, both of those happen because people start getting caught up in, well, which gifts are for today and which ones aren't? And uh, what are your gifts? And do you know how to discover your gifts? And are you using your gifts in the church? And if you're not using your gifts, then that's wrong. And all this discussion about this sometimes kind of misses maybe the center point in, 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 in the gifts. So... What about the gifts? Are all the gifts for today? Only some of those gifts for today? I personally believe that, man, all of the gifts for, are for today. I do, personally. Now, do I think some of that's abused? I do. 
I just turn on like TBN and I get real nervous real fast. Real fast. Because it's like, oh, we're making more of the gifts than even the Spirit who gives them. So it's like, man, put on the five-point hardness and go for a ride. That's great. You know, but caution is we realize that. But boy, I believe all the gifts are, are for today and are meant primarily for this other thing, which is for the church. Not for me. Now, one of the problems is going to be, for some of us, we go, I don't even know what my gift is. And that's another pressure we put on. You need to know your gift. I'm convinced of a couple of things. And one is, I think there will be some people that live their whole life and they don't know what their gift or gifts are. They just may not know. Right? He gives gifts. It doesn't mean we always know what our gift is. My thing is the encouragement here is to say, just do what you feel led to. That might be your gift. The pressure of this is you have to know what your gift is. Uh, No, you're called to serve in the church. You're called to use your talents, your skills, your mind, your everything for the glory of God. And some of those things are supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit. But no matter what, we pour into others through gifts, through talents, through skills, through all of it. But some of those things are supernatural gifts. And we should use those gifts. The other thing, though, I want to say about gifts is that there are some gifts that some people have as gifts that the rest of us just have to do as obedient things. Right? And here's why I say this. I've had this conversation with more than one person uh, where they'll say uh, they're they're doing something a little bit mean, a little bit bitey, a little bit rude, and then they'll say, but you know, I don't have the gift of mercy. I'm like, apparently you just have the gift of jerk. You know, so... um, No, fine, you don't have the gift of mercy. Now you have the command to be merciful. That's it. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Well, then it's going to be extra hard as you obey the calling to evangelize. I don't have the gift of teaching. Well, then you're going to have to study up because we're supposed to teach and admonish one another. So don't fall into this, hey man, if it's not my gift, I don't have to be that. Or even worse, it's not my gift, so I can be the opposite of that. That that don't play. The Holy Spirit doesn't look at that and say, yeah, I understand. That's why they're so difficult. They don't have the gift of mercy. He looks at that and says, boy, that's sad because actually I am trying to bear fruit in them of which jerk isn't one. Rude isn't one. Short-tempered isn't one. Right? And this is something for me. Right? My wife has the gift of mercy. I do not. My wife is a tremendously merciful person and sometimes looks at me when I'm doing something or saying something, and she says, shouldn't you be merciful? And I'm like, shouldn't you just keep that to yourself? And, um, just hold the tongue. Yeah. And, but she's right, because here's the bottom line. Even if I don't want to be merciful, I am called to long-suffering and patience and kindness. So don't hide behind your sin saying it's not your gift. Right? Gifts are supernaturally charged. Everything else is responsibilities. But the Holy Spirit brings these things to pass. He brings these things to pass, right? He gives them out. Which is probably another thing even to keep in mind. Uh, There'll be times where people are like, man, you need to pray to receive this gift. You need to do these things to get this gift. Newsflash, only the Holy Spirit gives gifts. Only the Holy Spirit gives gifts. And I think that's a valuable thing to remember because some of us have been in environments where we're told we can receive things that only the Spirit can give. 
Now, I think it's okay to seek the Spirit, pray to the Spirit, ask the Spirit to give gifts. I think that's fine. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 14.1. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. You can pray for that, but it doesn't mean you're going to receive that. You certainly don't order it online for 19.95 in a free handkerchief that's from the Jordan, all right? You don't. So, you trust the Spirit to do that. Because He's the one that shows us the mind of God. He's the one that reveals the gifts of God. The third aspect is one that I think, to me, is the most important thing. Probably the third and fourth point we'll look at. But this third one is so important. It was one I was just starting to get into. And it's this idea that the Holy Spirit displays the fruit of God. The fruit of God. And this goes back to, again, Moses' issue. How will the world know we're yours unless your presence is with us? And I believe, how will the world know that God's presence is in us? It's not how smart we are. It's not how hard we work. It is our disposition. Our disposition of the Spirit is the way in which the world will know that God lives with us. And that disposition will be holy, right? What's that mean? Uncommon. Our disposition should be different than the world around us. If our disposition is the same, if we sound the same, we're just as bitey, just as short, just as cold, just as uncaring, just as quick to fire, then who's going to know that God's presence is with us? I mean, this is going to be something that Paul profoundly challenges, and the way he does so has a context that I think we have to understand. So I'm going to take us back a little bit to understand the context. Right? So we go back to the first idea that we looked at last week, that before Jesus, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Our heart is a dead heart. Right? I think we have an image here. We can bring it up. We have a little guy with a dark heart. That Satan ring is all you can see, right? So that is an unconverted person and an unconverted heart. The heart is deceitful. It is wicked. It does not seek the things of God. But then God in his grace converts us. And when God converts us, it says he takes out that old heart, he chucks it, takes a new heart, places that in our life, right? That's the new heart that we need, Ezekiel 36. And with the new heart is a new spirit, the Holy Spirit. And here's what you have to understand. I had a great question last week. It was about, well, you know, if if the heart is a new heart and it's totally good, how does that fit with the the trials and struggles that I have? Um, Here's the best way I can capture it. That new heart is the only true 100% pure thing in us. Right? Because it's new. In fact, if anything, I I would say that that is the forward operating post that God uses to begin to transform our lives. He says, I got to take that old dead thing out, but I put in 100% new heart. My spirit resides in your heart. That's when, you know, we have like little kids who are like, do we want Jesus, do you want Jesus to come and make a home in your heart? Which is probably not the greatest theology, but the idea is right. Really what we need to say is you want God to demolish your house and Jesus to build a little heart house in you. That would be good theology, right? But he is that pure heart. And that's what's going to begin to transform us. And so conversion gives us a new heart. And then from that, there is a transformation. That is the next slide, which is sanctification. So from that new heart, God begins to change the person. I mean, this is why, even looking at like Ephesians 3, I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. 
This is why we say the Holy Spirit brings inner strength. It comes from this new heart that he gives. And this begins to shape our person. This begins to mold us more into the image of Christ. It begins to display God's presence living in us. The problem now is what Paul is going to be saying in Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Let's bring up this next one. That old part of us, not heart, the residue of our old nature, our old man, it pushes back. So new heart, God's shaping you. The Spirit is growing you. But all the old baggage we picked up, all of the old habits, all of the old inclinations, they want to fight back. Now, they're not as strong as what God is working out in us, but they are difficult. And so from that, Paul, getting ready to talk about the fruit of the Spirit, says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. He says, man, you got a new heart from the gospel. God lives in you, so let the Holy Spirit guide you. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. He says the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you are not free to carry out your good intentions. You have this constant kind of breathing in, breathing out thing going on. Right? And, and I, here, here's what I'll say. I think it's like this. and It gets more of your life over the course of years. And you grow and... But it's always kind of this. It's in and out, in and out, in and out. Sometimes you give into the flesh. Sometimes you let the Spirit really champion. Sometimes you give into the flesh. Sometimes you let the Spirit champion. Ultimately, you're always growing. The Spirit's going to win. But we struggle, right? But that's the context that Paul begins to set up for this discussion on the fruit of the Spirit. He's going to say, listen, you're to, to, to display fruit, but here's going to be the challenge. There's going to be things that cause you to want to resist displaying that. So the question becomes, how do we, how do we get there? How, what do we need to do to be more committed to life in the Spirit than life in the flesh? Well, this is why I, I turn to Paul in Romans chapter 12. Where he says, hey man, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, in this very cool dynamic, when we talk about the Word of God, sometimes we think one thing. We think a Bible. When in reality, the Word of God has many facets. Jesus is the Word of God. A Bible is the Word of God. But there's also this implanted Word. So, in some ways, you have, on the outside of a believer, you have uh, the Word of the Spirit. But on the inside of the believer, you have the Spirit of the Word. Right? He is the author of both. He is the author of all. So what we then need to do as believers is we take the word of the Spirit and we take it in. And that then kind of conjoins with the Spirit of the Word who resides in us. And that kind of bridges these gaps on our life that we need bridged. It closes a circuit. In fact, even for our students that read James uh, and have memorized it to go to Disneyland here in about a week, there's a passage in James chapter 1 that I think gets towards this a little bit. Verse 21, it says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So you have an external written word, but you also have this other thing, this implanted word that we're to receive, it says. So it's like, well, how do you, how do, you do that? Well, this is, kind of brings us to this, all right? 
So we've, we've got this black softball, which don't ever play with this at dusk, all right? So, um, and this is God's word, all right? And this is you. And when you have life in Christ and he places a spirit in you and he takes out one heart and he puts in another heart, with that placement, he places, implants the word in you. In one very real sense, it's a mystery, I don't fully understand it, but the word is implanted in you. And then in your life, you begin to see that implanted word come to the surface more and more. And the way you do that was with this right here. So we take the Bible, and Bible, well, puberty. Um, <clears throat> I'm growing in the spirit. All right, so um, so you, you take the Bible, and, and, and when, I, when I say this, I want you to understand that this isn't just simply reading your Bible. Right? This can be listening to good teachers. This can be reading good Christian books, growing in your doctrine, theology, beliefs, things that kind of open your eyes to, oh, that's what God calls us to. This is what God does. I mean, all of those things are taking in the truth. So we are called to take in the truth. But as we take in the truth, it coaxes the implanted word more to the surface of our lives. Right? So we take it in. It brings it more and more up in us. And so you have to keep this going all the time to coax this out, to bring it up, to draw it to the surface. That's the idea that James has, that the word is in you, but, but it needs to be drawn. It needs to be reached for internally to bring it to the external of life. And we do that by taking in and it joins with what's in and comes out. And what comes out at that point isn't just simply knowledge, but what Paul would say is fruit fruit. So you've got this battle, but the spirit is working. And the more you take in word and the more the word comes up in you, the more you will live out what is the fruit of the spirit. He says the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, these should be the automatic displays of the Spirit in our lives. Now, if we're not submitting to the Spirit, if we're going to lean heavy on what we know and what we do, I'm going to lean heavy on, on my knowledge, and I'm going to lean heavy on being a person that uses my gifts in the church. But we're not really trying to be Spirit-led. We'll be that person that does a lot, knows a lot, but people are a little nervous around. Because we go, they do a lot, but they're loose cannon. They do a lot, but they're not always kind. They do a lot, but they're not safe. In fact, if there's anything that's hurt the reputation of our faith in the public forum more than anything else, it's the lack of traits of the Spirit for a lot of our doing and knowing. And yet what He most wants to do is make us uncommon. And what's more uncommon than that list? That is an uncommon list. By the way, I want you to note that it doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit are these nine things. These nine things are one fruit. Singular. So it can't be like, well, I'm doing pretty good on love, joy, peace, but that kindness thing. Nope. Well, then we're not yielding to the Spirit enough where kindness would play out in us. If you go a step deeper with this, again, keep the context before you. Paul's not writing to a group that have easy lives. What his point is, in a lot of ways, is, hey, you know what? When you're mistreated, you have hardship, life is unfair, 
you're potentially irritated, you're insulted, you're beat down. These things should be true. And that's what makes you holy. That's what makes you uncommon. That's what makes you set apart. I mean, think about it. It is easy to love when you're around people that love you. But with people that hate you, it's uncommon when you love. Which is what Jesus says, right? Love your enemies. So uncommon. So holy. Joy. It's easy to have joy when life's going good, when you got the raise, the family's happy, you got the new house, no problems in the world. Easy to have joy. That's not uncommon. Uncommon is when it falls apart. When you're losing the house or losing the job or your spouse has cancer or something's happened to your child or people are coming against you or you're just falsely accused of something. Man, to have joy in that, that's holy. That's uncommon. It's easy to have peace when you have allies. But can you be one that says, I'm going to go out of my way to make peace for those who just want war? Am I going to approach things with a tone to de-escalate the problem as opposed to escalate the, the concern, the worry, or the fight? See, I'm looking at this all week long, and then I just want to keep banging in my head against a pole someplace. Because I go, man, that's real holiness. That's real holiness. Nothing else. Just because I know the word, I can defend the word, I know the rules, that doesn't make me holy. At all. It's if I do those things with this spirit. I do these things with this heart. That's the difference. Go back to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, hey man, if I have the gift of prophecy, right? So if I use the gift of the spirit, and he says, and I have all knowledge, so I know the mind of God, but I don't have love, I'm a clanging symbol not only am I useless, I am worse than useless. I'm a pain. So if we think we're good because we do a lot and we know a lot, but we don't display these things, we're not as good as we think. That's the bottom line. We're not as good as we think. In fact, uh, quite the opposite. We might be in bad shape because we're just leaning a lot on what we know and what we do. As opposed to displaying the presence of God and who we are with this very, very, very painful list. See, and I think this is hard because there's going to be times, certainly in all of our lives, where we're going to be dealing with somebody who uh, irritates us, that rubs us wrong. And, and it's very easy to go, well, you know what? If you're irritating and you're kind of a jerk, I'm allowed to respond like a jerk. All we have is jerk squared at that point. It doesn't serve anything in any way. It's not like, well, I'm more allowed to be a jerk because they were a jerk first. You can do that. But, but here's the thing, and I, I've seen this pastorally a lot. Uh, people that feel the need to confront others, doing it outside of this list, but kind of the opposite. Like, because you need confrontation, I can be more hard on you as opposed to kindness and gentleness and patience and these things. And so, again, the fruit of the Spirit is uncommon. It's holy, and it's hard. But Paul then says from this, Against these things, against these nine features of the Spirit's presence, there is no law against these things. I mean, you can't find a law that says, well, love is bad. 
You can't find the law that says, oh, man, you're breaking the rules. You're being patient with that person, even though they're difficult. Stop it. There's no law that can forbid that because these are God's spirit features. Right? So he says there's no law. He says those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed its passions and desires of their sinful nature to the cross and crucified them. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives, at work, on the field, with friendly people, difficult people, mean people, nice people, doesn't matter. Every part. With your spouse, even if you're getting ramped up at each other and you're feeling out of sorts, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control. Right? And if there's any part of this that says, but, 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 you're in trouble. I mean, honestly. If you're looking at this right now and you go, but, but, wait, what about? Game over. You need to step one step further back and go, I'm just wrong. Holy Spirit, help me. Help me. I mean, that was my walk away this week because I had moments of like, man, I, I didn't want to do these. I didn't want to do these. And, and, and to not, though, is a conscious decision that says, you know, I just don't want to do it the Spirit's way. My way is going to be way more efficient. And it would be more efficient, but it certainly wouldn't be more holy. And that's the problem. And so fruit, he wants to produce fruit in us. Fruit that's unholy, or that's holy, that's uncommon fruit. In fact, if I took this even a step further, so we understand that this is power given to us and we have what we need to do this, it's to understand a word that is used of the Holy Spirit, one that I am using loosely as Him being your sentinel. The Holy Spirit is your sentinel, is your sentinel God in that sense. In fact, Jesus is uh, speaking to the disciples. And I love this because so often he puts the Holy Spirit in the context of suffering. Like, in the world you're going to suffer. That's why I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. In the world you're going to, to see all sorts of problems. But to show that you're my people, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. So you can endure that through the fruit of the Spirit. You can show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness as you face hard things. So in John chapter 15... He, he, start, he ends that chapter by saying, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. He says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Good to know, right? I mean, he's making a strong point. Anytime I see evangelicals getting upset about persecution and people being against the church, I'm like, I read that in the Gospel of John. I don't need to see that on CNN. It's in the Bible, all right? No news flash. They should say, hey, old news, 2,000 years old. Sorry, we were late, all right? So, so then he says, but when the Comforter comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So Jesus says, hey, man, the world is an unforgiving world but I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And he will be the comforter. Now, the word that's used here is a Greek word, paraclete. The paraclete. And depending on your version, I might translate it as comforter or counselor or helper. Now, my problem with this isn't those words. 
My problem is how we hear those words. How we read those words. Because it doesn't quite capture what's meant by the paraclete. In fact, to highlight this, I need a couple of people. So I'm going to use Nathan, wherever Nathan is, because he volunteered foolishly in advance. All right. And why not? I think we'll use Shannon because it's a sibling rivalry now. All right. So um, so we're going to bring these two up. Give them a hand as they're coming up really quick. All right, Nathan, I'm going to put you right here for now. So you can just stand there, look handsome like you are. And we're going to take your sister. We're going to just put you right here for now. It'll work out perfect. All right. And we're going to give you a weapon. All right. So, but because we're all about safety here, we'll give you a helmet. All right. And eye protection, because that's all we need is to lose your eye. All right. So, now, this this isn't stereotyping, but you're the devil. All right. And... For about three minutes. All right. So, and you are a Christian. All right. And I am going to, quote, play the role of Holy Spirit. Now, to do this, I'm going to move you out here just a little bit. uh, Right about here. Just face your sister. And you can step out a little bit, too. Now, I'm going to have you crank off about ten rounds. Because, again, Ephesians chapter 6, the flaming darts of the... Flaming darts. That's right. I needed to light these on fire. I forgot. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) You're like... Is he really going to do it? It would be so fun. All right. So, all right. So the way we kind of see this is the the devil has these flaming darts, wants to thwart the Christian life, wants to make sure that the fruit of the Spirit doesn't come out in Nathan's life, right? So just fire 10 rounds. Hit him right in the chest. That's fine. This is how sometimes we see the paraclete. Go ahead and fire away. Just a good 10. Everyone a kill shot. That was awesome. So we kind of have this image, right? And, and then we go, oh, but don't worry. Nathan has the paraclete, right? And the paraclete, after he's getting shots, like, there, there, comfort, right? Like, ah, oh, hope you're okay. And here's some help. You should duck next time, just a little. All right? I mean, like, like, we almost have this passive vision, you know, that, that he comes into council, you know, next time, just dodge and weave, dodge and weave, all right? And, then, and like, he goes away and lets you do it. You know, and that's, in some ways, the way we see words like help and comfort and, uh, you know, counselor. But that's not the way the Bible actually is trying to communicate those things. In fact, let's go ahead and bring up this next uh, shot, I think. Let's, uh, we can go to the one, next one after this. Kind of tells us that that's the paraclete, comfort, counselor, helper. But here's the thing I want us to look at. This word, paraclete, is just a, a, a union of two words, right? So you have alongside and to call, right? And in this sense, Christ is calling the Spirit alongside of us. And so from that we go, oh, okay, well then how do we translate that, like that in English? Well, originally we went from Greek to Latin. And when we did that, this next designation came up. Let's bring it up here. Comfort. But the word comfort, when we translated it, uh, communicated something in the day which was not there there nathan i know it's hard here's some cookies right it is not that it's literally with strength right come forth with strength what is your forte we're going to get in the fortress we need you to fortify 
The word comfort isn't meant to be uh, tender, sweet, wrap you in a blanket. It's meant to be with strength. That's comfort. We also use counselor. Let's bring up that. The idea of a counselor, when Jesus uses the word paraclete, was used of a defense lawyer. One who would fight on your behalf. One who would fight for your family. Right? That was a paraclete. So when we read, uh, he will send a comforter, a counselor, a helper. Don't see it as docile. Don't see it as sort of half interested and half removed. Man, only if you kind of ask, well, maybe he'll show up and say, hey, duck and weave. No, the image is very different. So I'm going to have you shoot another ten rounds. But as you do, you have to shoot them into my back, all right? So this is what the Holy Spirit does. Now, you want to get behind me as much as possible. You're out of ammo. It's because I thwarted the power of the devil. All right, let's try that. Ow. All right. Now, here's the thing. Notice, he's not doing this because he doesn't care about that. He's doing this because he cares about this. He's keeping an eye on you. And your job is to keep an eye on him. If Nathan would have just looked past me to see what was going on, kill shot, right? Pericles, right? With strength, with fortitude is this. And this is what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Now, unfortunately, we don't always play by that rule. We don't look at him. We look at the problem. We look at whether we'll get justice or fairness or whatever. Or we're just curious, which is dumb, right? But this is the paraclete. And so our calling, our job, our role is to just look at him. Not stuff, him. And if we look at him, all the other stuff, man, it's going to be okay. I can have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness because I'm looking at him. If I look at stuff, I don't want to do that. I look at him. I want to do that. All right. Thanks, guys. So the question is, I am running out of time, is how do we look at him? We're going to wrap this up really quick. How do we ride the wind? All right, well, it's a little bit what you see there. I would say it's the difference between kite runners and kite, kite flyers. Kite runners and kite flyers. Let's bring up this next slide, this kite. Uh, there's two ways to fly a kite, right? A kite runner does this. And they run as fast as they can for as far as they can to keep the kite going. And that's some of what we do. Some of us do that. I need to fly my own spiritual kite. So I'm going to hold and I'm going to run as far as I can. But here's the problem. After a while, you get tired. You can't keep doing it. You've got to keep enough air to keep it aloft. In other words, you're not relying on anything other than your own ability. That's a kite runner. A kite flyer. Woohoo! But again, what's the kite flyer do? Looks at the kite. What does the Christian do? They look at the paraclete. We're not talking about, quote, more performance. We're simply talking about really striving in a spiritual way to center our life on the Holy Spirit and what He desires to do. So so what are some of the things we we do to do this? Well, one is we pray in the Spirit. It says this in Jude chapter 1. Just pray in the Spirit. And that isn't some tongue supernatural thing necessarily. It just means prayer in the Spirit. 
Or you're even coming saying, Jesus, you know, I, I pray that you will lay on my heart the things that I should pray about through your Spirit. It's also truth from the Spirit, right? Uh, the, the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, Jesus says in John 14 and in John 16. He sends the Spirit of truth. So, man, get in the Word. Know truth, because it's how He brings the Word out in you and speaks to your heart. Things like focusing on the Spirit, saying, I want my life to be characterized by Him, not by me. When I have the moment to be rude or bitey or snap or make a point that isn't going to sound gracious, I consciously don't. Because I know the Spirit wants to say something on this, and I'm just getting in the way. It means dwelling with the Spirit. Just really dwelling, saying every day. This is my wife. She's so awesome at this, where literally every day she's saying to our kids, um, is that the fruit of the Spirit? Are you letting your life be led by the Spirit? Literally, when our kids get in trouble, you know what they don't get? Why are you doing this? The first thing my wife goes to is, how is that displaying the fruit of the Spirit? I mean, she's awesome at this. Sometimes it's, ah, but that's when they're really stupid. And then, and, then, and then my wife realizes, wait, I'm not displaying the fruit of the Spirit and getting onto them. And she's really good at that. Me, on the other hand, I go off for about five minutes, and then my wife says, don't forget about the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm like, yeah, don't forget about the rod, spoil the child. Um, and <laughs> Not anymore. All right, so. And then last, manifesting the Spirit, letting Him use His abilities and gifts through you, right? Because that's what He desires to do. All of these things are being kite flyers, not just kite runners. And I warn you, to do this is a little bit like um, windsurfing. I, I, I tried to windsurf once, a long time ago. And I burned probably 10,000 calories that day and traveled about 22 yards, all right? So, um, and, and, you know, it's just completely awkward. And, and I was there with somebody that knew how to do it really well. And I'm like, so what do I need to do? And they're like, uh, pretty much you just need to get on the board and get the sail up and grab the sail and ride the wind. I'm like, really? I go, well, is anything different than you do? They're like, no, just do that. And so I did my best, and I couldn't do it. But here's the thing. If you keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it, pretty soon you can do it so efficiently, you burn the least amount of calories, but you can go the furthest and the fastest because you learn how to simply leverage the wind that's there. And that's all we're talking about. Over the course of the Christian life, we're going to learn. We're going to struggle at first, and it's going to be hard, and we're going to fall, and we're not going to get a lot of mileage. But the more we do it, the more we seek to just submit to the wind, the more we'll learn how to ride that wind. And it's not more work, it's less work, because he's doing the work. So that's what it means to ride the wind. And we ride the wind chiefly, why? For Holy Spiritness. Not just holiness. Holy Spiritness. That's the big idea, right? I mean, again, I'm not going to finish the rest of our slides. We're going to stop right here. But when Jesus uh, talks about this, he's saying, yes, I know the world is hostile. Yes, I know people are unfair. Yes, I know it's going to be difficult. Yes, I know there aren't going to be kind individuals. So I give you my spirit so you can live in my spirit so you can be different. Different. Right? In fact, if anything, the guarantee is it's going to be hard. This is why in Romans 8, it talks about the fact that, you know what? We are adopted as sons and daughters, and we say, amen, we can call him Abba Father. You know what it says in verse 17? If we suffer, we are filled with the Spirit, we can say Abba Father, and all of these encouraging things come. He says, if we suffer. But then he goes on to say, but don't worry, because all things work out to good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He says that in the context of suffering. He says, I've given you the Spirit so that you can suffer. But don't worry, 
because all things are going to work for good. Why? He says, because you and I are more than conquerors. More than. There wasn't a word. You know, conquer, you're more than that. I can't even come up with what it is. Because we have the Spirit. So is there any excuse why we can't exercise love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control, these ideas? No. We simply need to submit to the one who makes us more than conquerors. Jesus, I thank you so much for today. I know this was just a lot of intake. But I pray that your spirit will even sort it out in us and we will see those areas that, again, you call us to yield to you more on. We don't want to be just like everybody around us. We want to be uncommon to the world around us by being more like you, Jesus. To live, to walk, to ride the wind that you've given to us. We love you and praise you in your name. Amen.